Hebrews chapter 8, and beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Let's pray together. Lord, unveil your truth. Unveil your word. Show us Christ. In this be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. There are many things, but only one main thing. There are many distractions that will keep us from the main thing. Many bad things, many good things. We are after the main thing. And the main thing is to know what the main thing is and to center in on that. It's the main thing in a relationship. We should be about that. There are many things that are the function of an employer, an employee, job, things we must do, but there are many things, only one main thing. Once again, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the writer of Hebrews has communicated a whole lot to us. This is actually sermon number 34 in our series on Hebrews. And my concern is that I'm going too fast. I could point you to places on the internet where by the time they have come to Hebrews chapter 8, they're already in sermon number 85, 86, 87. So I'm going like lightning speed through the book of Hebrews. The writer has communicated a lot, and what I appreciate is that he does more than simply summarize where he's at and what he's communicated. You might smile that I might think we've gone very quickly through Hebrews, but there are very much evidence on the internet of those who've done much more in the way of sermons regarding this. Because every service and every sermon is seeking to draw out from the Scripture what is there in the Scripture. We call it exegesis, out of. We are to bring out of the Scripture what is there. Rather than the opposite, eisegesis, which is to Uh, read into the scripture, put something there that wasn't ever there. Our job as preachers is to find out what's there and bring it out and communicate it and describe the meaning and then apply it to us. And every sentence in Hebrews is important. We're finding that every word communicates something vital. So having communicated so much, the writer of Hebrews now gives his readers much in the way of insight. He doesn't merely pause to give us a summary He could have done that. That's not actually what he does. He provides more than a summary, more than a summation of the points covered. He does far more when he says, 
in verse 1. Here's the point. Here's the point. Now the point in what we are saying is this. In other words, this is the main thing. This is the main point. In other words, get this. If some of these things are a little bit of a blur to you, get this. This is the main point. Our ears should prick up when an author of Scripture is telling us, get this. This is the main thing. Don't go to sleep right now. This is it. You must grasp this. This is the most important thing being communicated. You've got to get this. If you miss everything else, get this. Why? Because this is the main point. This is the main thing. Again, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. The NASB says, now the main point. And what's the main point? Here's the main point. We have such a high priest. Stop there. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the main point. That's what really matters. Who are the recipients of this letter? Let, me, let us be remi- reminded of that. They, these were Jewish Christians. Many of them had lost homes. We read of this later in the epistle. Many had lost, certainly, influence. They had suffered the loss of jobs. They were now being shunned by society. Interesting, not only by the pagans and the Romans with their gods, pagan society, but now by Jewish society. There were two frontal attacks on these huddled group of Christians, the pagans and the religionists of Judaism. They'd been banned from the synagogue because they were now pronouncing Jesus as the Messiah. They were under the tyrannical rule of emperors. If you read of the emperors, there were very few, if any, who had any kind of morals whatsoever. And they oftentimes were demanding worship. Not every emperor, but most did. They required that you bow down and acknowledge Caesar as God, Caesar as Lord. That's why it took courage to say, no, Jesus is Lord. Kairos Curios was the demand of the Romans. Say, Caesar is Lord, and they say, no, uh, Jesus is Lord. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul could write, no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. It took the courage born of the Holy Spirit in the heart for you to say it and mean it in that historical context. Under that tyranny, this small group of Jewish Christians were being encouraged because nothing they could see or very little that they could see with earthly eyes was encouraging. They were not a mega church. They were not the bee's knees. They were not the show in town. They were not many camels or horses or donkeys outside the meeting place. The Jews were saying, you don't even have a high priest. Look at you. But wait, here's the message. And here's the main thing. We do have a high priest. We have a better high priest. Jesus is better. We have a priest and he's better. The Old Testament Levitical priests are now obsolete. obsolete. The sanctuary is obsolete. The covenant is obsolete. That old covenant, the new one has come in. The sacrifices being made, present tense, are obsolete. Jesus is better. We have a better priest. But more than that, look at the text. We have such a high priest. 
We have a certain kind of priest. What kind of priest do we have? We have such a high priest. Go back to chapter 2 of Hebrews and we will outline some of the things that have been mentioned already by our writer. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is the incarnation in view. God became a man. He was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big theological word, but it's one we must grasp. It means to remove wrath by means of a sacrifice. God is angry. Why? Because we're sinners before a holy God. He has every right to be angry. And the sacrifice of Jesus propitiated, removed the anger of the Father against His chosen ones. He stood in our place and He made not a kind of act, uh, what would we say about uh, a propitiation, a, a potential propitiation? It would work if you do something. No, he actually saved people. He actually averted the wrath of God for some people on the cross. He redeemed us by his blood, a people out of every tribe, tongue, group, and nation. So Hebrews 2 verse 17 tells us he's a merciful and faithful high priest, one who has made propitiation. Go to chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's a great priest who has passed through the heavens. He's done what heaven needed. He's in the place of authority. And he's sympathetic towards us. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This was the blameless one, the guiltless one, and this one is sympathetic towards us. He has compassion and he's sinless. This is the kind of priest we have. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal, eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a perfect high priest and the source of salvation according to the order of Melchizedek. And as we've seen, this priesthood of Melchizedek is far better than anything that was available under the Levitical system. That's a whole subject in itself and it's what Hebrews chapter 7 is given towards. Go to chapter 6 verse 19. We read these words. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This high priest serves his priesthood not just for a few years, but forever and ever. And he serves that priesthood within the veil. He is where he needs to be. And where he is, there we are. And this is our hope, the anchor of the soul. 
One day our physical bodies will catch up with what is true in the spiritual realm. You're in Christ. Where He is, there you are. You now have been seated with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Not will one day, but it's a past tense event. When Jesus died, every Christian died in Him. When He was buried, we were buried with Him. When He rose, we rose with Him. We, when He ascended, we ascended with Him. And when He sat on the throne, we sit together with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. Someone should get excited about it. But I know, you're in church. Amen. Look at chapter 7, verse 25. We saw this recently. Verse 25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them, them being the people of God. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then seven qualifications. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This Jesus is high priest and he is the offering. He doesn't bring an offering, he brings himself as the offering. He himself is perfect, his sacrifice is perfect, he as high priest is perfect, perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, perfect redemption. It's amazing. He's fitting, he's appropriate, he's the one we need. We saw last time the seven qualifications laid out in these verses. All of this, all of it, is beyond the realm of the senses. The writer couldn't say, I'm attaching a photo of Jesus on the throne. Uh, I'm giving you, from, uh, just get it on your phone, I'm going to send it right now. Uh, Jesus on the throne so you can see him. No, it's outside the realm of the senses. And we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's why not too far from here, we're in chapter 8. Chapter 11 is the great faith chapter. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. What's the application? You need to do the same. You can't see him on the throne, but that's where he is. You can't see it as you look at society, but that's where he is. You can't see it when the emperor gives his decree. They can only give their decree because God allows their decree to stand because he has decreed all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the God who is in charge. But you can't see it yet, but one day you will. But right now, you need to walk by faith, not by sight. He's a perfect high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice and provided a perfect salvation. But this is beyond the realm of the senses. But you've got to get it. You've got to get it. You've got to get it. What's the main point? We have him. We have such a high priest. You huddled small group of Christians hounded by society. What an encouragement this would be. We have him. Not we will get him one day. No, one day you'll see him, but you have him now. We have such a high priest. We have him. What a declaration. We have him. We have such a high priest. He's ours. He belongs to us. We have such a high priest. If you're Irish, you'd dance a merry jig. If you're Pentecostal, you'd run around the building with your hands in the air. 
but you'd do something. You wouldn't look glum. You wouldn't look depressed because you've got him. You've got access to him. You have access to him 24-7 every day of the year. And that access will not end at death. The church is the only organization that never loses a member at death. Think about that. The church is bigger than that which is seen on earth. It's also in heaven. And one day, that which is the physical church now will join that which is already taking place in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem. The service is already going on. We're late to the service. And one day we'll see angels in festal array around the throne. So many we cannot count them. And we will join with them but Lord's Day worship in the unseen realm is us ascending to the heavenly Jerusalem to join that ongoing service praising the Lamb. What a joy. He's ours. We have Him. We have such a high priest. Not we will get Him. It's okay. One day you'll have access to Him. You have Him now. This sympathetic, compassionate, perfect priest who's provided the perfect sacrifice and has given us perfect redemption. He's ours. We have him. The writer's not content to just say this. He's got to elaborate more. He goes on as we read. One who is seated. Do you see that in the text? We have such a high priest. One who is seated. The point that has been made already. In fact, it was seen in the early verses of Hebrews. The sitting down of the one who provided redemption for us. One who is seated. Old Testament priests don't sit. There's no accommodation for sitting. This speaks of Christ's perfect and finished work. There was no place in the tabernacle, no place in the temple where the priest said, okay, I'm getting tired, I'm going to just sit for a while. No, his work was ongoing. It was never done. It was never fulfilled. It was never perfect. There was always another sacrifice to be made. This speaks of the contrast. When he did one sacrifice, not 38, not 138, but one sacrifice, when he brought himself, he was able to sit down. Done, it's over. On the cross, he was able to say, in Greek, one word, tetelestai. In English, three words, it is finished. It's done. It's paid for. I've accomplished it. He actually did it. He did it all. Hear this from Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says it. Hebrews 8 says it. Hebrews 10, 12 says it. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. One commentator said, this work was well and truly done. Where is he seated? Turning again to our text. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The one we have, our great high priest, is seated on the throne. In the place of supreme power, supreme honor, supreme authority. Jesus was able to say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Try and think, what does that leave out? Abraham Kuyper, who was 
prime minister of the Netherlands and also a theologian, made the statement, there is no place, and I'm paraphrasing, there is no place on earth. Every square inch belongs to Christ. For every place, this Christ can say of every inch, mine. He owns China. He owns Canada. He owns Italy. He owns Argentina. He owns Pluto. He owns Mars. There's no place in this universe where he is not the rightful king. Every king, every president, every emperor have borrowed authority, delegated authority. They are merely stewards who will give an account to the one who owns everything. It's been said of the king of England, his crown is a borrowed crown. Why? Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. He will not come to be made king. The ceremony has already taken place. He's king of kings, lord of lords. Heaven knows it, earth doesn't know it, except by the revelation of scripture. You can't see it now, but one day you will. He is king now. He's ruling now. Where's he seated? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The one we have, our great high priest, is seated on the throne, the highest place. Now, we don't place him there. He is there. He's there whether you acknowledge it or not. He is Lord whether you say, Jesus is Lord from your own heart and mouth. He is Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. On the 31st of December, I made Jesus Lord. No, you never made him Lord. He is Lord. On the 31st of December, you might have acknowledged he's Lord and said, I submit to your Lordship. But he is Lord whether you acknowledge him or not. And one day the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our Bibles. You know, we don't place him there. He is there. God the Father has said of him, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Sit with me. Sit on your throne till I make all your enemies a footstool. Do you know this is in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 6? Keep your place in Hebrews. Go back to Zechariah. Genesis, Exodus, Zechariah. There it is. Towards the end of your Old Testament, just before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 6, look at verse 12. One of the titles of Messiah is the branch. Verse 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Didn't Jesus say, I will build my church? It's not yours, John. It's not yours, Tony. It's not yours, Malcolm. It's the church of the Lord Jesus. He said, I will build my church. That's what he's doing. He's doing that now. He's building his church. God builds his church through the preaching of the word. It's the word that brings forth the church, just as the word brought forth creation. And anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, born again by the word, the impenetrable seed of the word of God. 
For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of Yahweh, the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Under the Old Testament Levitical system, you could not be a priest and a king. We've established that. But Zechariah says, there's one coming who'll be priest and king. He'll be priest and he sits on the throne. And that's only possible because he's priest according to the order of Melchizedek. An Old Testament priest could never be king. But this one in the order of Melchizedek is the priest on the throne and we have him. We have him. Note the phrase, the majesty. Back to to Hebrews chapter 8. A minister, excuse me, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That phrase, the majesty, is a title for God. The majesty. The majesty. Kings and queens of England are addressed as your majesty. But there's only one who can rightly be described as the majesty. The majesty, where? In heaven. This refers to the immediate presence of God. And remember, we have this high priest. We have such a high priest. The NASB describes it this way. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's taken his rightful place. Not in Jerusalem. Not in Paris or London, New York. Not in Salt Lake City, not in New York, not in London, but in heaven itself. And that's where he needs to be. But even this is not all. Note the next phrase, verse 2. Well, pastor, you've only got through verse 1. I know, I've been going too quick. (laughs) Verse 2. A minister in the holy places. NASB. A minister in the sanctuary. Oh, this high priest of ours. Guess what? He's ministering today. You ever heard a sermon on the present day ministry of Jesus? We often talk about what he did. We often talk about what he's done. Rightfully so. But Hebrews talks of that and talks of how he is ministering today. A minister in the sanctuary. A minister in the holy places. This high priest of ours, this one that we have, we have such a high priest, we have him. He's ministering today, right now. Where? In heaven. Specifically, in the true tent, next phrase, that the Lord set up, not man. NASB, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jews, they say, you don't have a high priest. We do. We've got a high priest. Look at verse 5 of Hebrews 8. They serve, talking about the physical Levitical priests, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Why would you mention that phrase, they serve? Because that's present tense. This gives us indication that Hebrews was written in the 60s, not the 1960s, but the AD 60s. And something dramatic happened in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, and with it, the destruction of the temple. And when the temple was destroyed, it was basically over for the Levitical system. 
But at this moment, they were still serving. Think of that if you're the Christian. The Jews say, you don't have a high priest, we do. You don't have priests, we do. Just go and look. They're functioning. They're doing their thing. They're doing the stuff of religion. You don't even have that. Here's the message. We do. We have one. He's ours. And he's far better. I can't even say it loud enough. Far better. Far better. You don't have a high priest. We do. They serve. The Levitical priesthood was still functioning at the time of writing. You don't have a high priest. We do. Here's the message. Yes, you do, and he's better. Yes, you do, Christian, and he's better. Don't be intimidated by that which you can see with earthly eyes. Don't be intimidated by what you observe by the senses. We walk by faith, not by sight. Not by what is revealed to the senses. And their priesthood is over. It looks like they're functioning, but according to God, what they're doing is obsolete, makes no difference. It does nothing in the courts of God. It's obsolete. It's done away with. Do you remember in Matthew 27, 51, after Jesus died, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. This curtain represented the division, the dividing place between God and man. It was between three and four inches thick, very thick. No man could rip it. And notice what it says, ripped from top to bottom. It wasn't from the bottom up. Even that is symbolic. It wasn't that man says, okay, I'm going to rip this thing. God says, no, I'm going to do it based on what my son just did at Calvary's cross. Behold, look. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. What a testimony to the priests who were carrying on their religion. Whoosh. What do we do, George? I don't know what we do. Uh, 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 we've got to get an insurance claim in. Yeah, we, we've got a, um, a, a, a broken curtain. Yeah, it, well, uh, fill a form in, George. Uh, act of God. That's what it was. Act of God. <laughs> They felt the earth move under their feet. That's the original rock and roll. The curtain has been torn. What a testimony. But you see, still, the Levitical priest carried on. Uh, tr try and ignore it. What do we do next? Well, let's go to the manual. Uh, there's, uh, there's actually nothing about what happens when the torn uh, curtain... Uh, but uh, To carry on anyway, make another one. But God had made testimony to the priests. What you're doing means nothing now. Oh, that divide between God and man was abolished by God. God set the curtain up and God tore it down. The curtain has been torn. It's an act of God from top to bottom. Man didn't do it from bottom to top. God did it from top to bottom. Priesthood is obsolete. What did the priests do? They regrouped and carried on like normal. That's what all religionists do. But God had made it clear. What you're doing is obsolete. There's a true tent, and that's what's in view. There's a minister in the holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. This is outside the realm of the senses. And there, this high priest is functioning now. 
We're talking about ultimate reality. Heaven's the real. Everything on earth is temporary. Jesus said it this way, heaven and earth, that's everything, will pass away. But my word will never pass away. Do you know the word of God is more enduring than the ground you're standing on, than the mountains you see? Amen. More enduring. Everything that we've learned through our senses is temporal. Heaven and earth, that covers everything, will pass away. But my word, which is eternal, will never pass away. It's the word of God that made heaven and earth. And it's the word of God that will sustain the new heaven and earth. And the old one will be gone. This that you can see will all be gone. And the real will emerge. Do you think heaven's real? It's more real than anything you can see. It's what's in the unseen that has given birth and created that which is seen. God said, let there be. And that's why beings exist. Things exist. Because God's word, which is eternal, made everything. So don't put your trust in the things. But see the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing because that's the main thing. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is like the airline schedule, subject to change. There's a true tent, ladies and gentlemen. Everything else is a copy. Everything you've seen in the tabernacle, everything you've seen in the temple, is simply a copy of something more real than what you can see. Heaven is the real. Heaven's the original. Heaven's the genuine. Heaven's the substance. Earth is the copy. Earth is the transitory thing. Earth is the shadow. We're speaking about ultimate reality, something that lasts forever. And the Hebrew Christians couldn't see it. They didn't have a picture of it except the Word of God explained it to them so that they could see what is not seen. My application for us today is, can you see it? Can you see Christ on the throne? Not with my physical eyes. But my spirit rejoices. Why does my spirit rejoice? Because it knows it's true. Jesus is king now. This is not a fairy tale. It's more real than any story you and I can tell. Everything you and I can see is temporary, transitory, subject to change. Hear these words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentary affliction. I love the fact that Paul's not writing as someone in the ivory tower has never been through anything. You read 2 Corinthians 12. Tortured, stoned, not on drugs. Over and over, he suffered immense persecution. And he called it a momentary light affliction. Why? In the light of eternity, that's what it is. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the message of your Bible. Hebrews 8, verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Levitical priests, they're functioning. 
but Jesus surpasses all of them. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Had to be done God's way. And everything they were doing was merely providing a copy of the original. You understand that in the business world, in the office world, you have the original and you have copies. Sometimes the copies don't look that great compared to the original. Sometimes they do. But everything that Moses was instructed to do was simply a copy of something more real, more real, more genuine, more authentic. And so, a sacrifice under the Old Testament could only cover sin, it could never really take it away. It covered over sin. The word atonement means covering. Yom Kippur, the high day in the Jewish calendar, is a celebration of a covering. God has covered over sin for another year. But every priest had to keep functioning. Oh, Someone else has sinned. I've sinned. They've sinned. Someone, okay, sin has come. Okay, we'll make another sacrifice. Okay, what was it? Okay, confess it over this lamb. Let's slay the lamb. Okay, can we sit down now? No, there's no place to sit down. There's sin after sin after sin and sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Ongoing, continual. Once a year, atonement for the nation took place. And there's a sigh of relief for about five minutes when they had to start new sacrifices again. But Jesus didn't bring a lamb. He was the lamb. And he brought himself to the cross. And this is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became a man who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, this unblemished, this spotless lamb who went to the cross after living the life of the law before his Father in word, thought, and deed never having to say sorry, never committing sin, blameless. On the cross, the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, the words there. God laid on him, on his back, the the, the sin of all those who would ever believe. God's people. And he died in their place. He was buried. And he rose to the place of all authority in this universe. That's the message. Not, well, he's... Won't won't you help Jesus? He's standing at the door of your heart. Do you hear his knock? I stand at the door. Yeah, if you read the context, it's the door of the church, not the door of the human heart. What God does when he saves someone is he kicks the door down. Some churches don't recognize him. And he's outside. What an indictment that was. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I'll come in and we'll have fellowship. You don't need that for a verse about the individual salvation. No, he who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why do they do it? Because God knocks the door of their heart down, comes in and says, I'm Lord. And you say, I love it. I want you. I didn't want you eight minutes ago but you knocked the door down and I want you 
Oh, God would never violate free will. You better, better wish that he does, because you and I will free will our soul to hell. We don't want God till God takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. How does he do, how does he do that? He knocks the door down. Amen. That's what he does. Amen. Every ransom sinner in heaven gets this. We're all reformed up there. We get it. Some people get to heaven and God says, you're in. But boy, only barely. And you need to sit in a class. My brother Samson's going to go through Salvation 101. They say, no, that's hell. (laughs) But there we get it. Do you know the saints on their knees get it? Why? We ask God to do something for people. Lord, would you show them Christ? Would you open up their hearts? This is how the saints have prayed through the ages. We get it in prayer. But our muddled theology at times says God would never violate free will. You better hope he does. Because we don't want him. There's nothing in us that wants him. There is no God seeker, Romans 3.11. But I'm seeking God now. Yeah, because he first sought you. Because he first came for you. He opened up your heart. He knocked the door down. I didn't want him. I had no interest in him. To one day... May the 11th, 1980, the wind of the Holy Spirit blew into a, into a church service. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is of everyone who's born of the Holy Spirit. And under the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit superintended that word, stormed my heart, knocked the slats from under me, knocked that door down, and I wanted Christ, and I'd never wanted him before. And my father was a preacher, but I didn't want Christ. Some said it's just a passing phase. Well, more than 40 years later, I'm still serving Christ because he, when he comes in, he comes in to stay. When it's the real thing, it is the real thing. Amen. And he that began the good work in us wasn't us. It was God. And he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, that one falls away. 1 John 2, 19 says they never were truly of us. If they walk away and never come back and start shouting and proclaiming other gods and other ways, John didn't say they had salvation for 18 months. Think about that. Eternal life. I had eternal life for 18 months. No, when God storms the heart, he gives repentance and faith as a gift. And it's a trust in the finished work of Christ. And they understand the true gospel. Everything else is religious show. So what's the main point? The point is who he is. And what he's done. And what he's doing. And here's the point. Are you ready? We have him. We have him. Rome says you'll die. We, we have him. Rome says, you'll die for that confession. Hold fast that confession because you have him. The emperor says, bow before me. No, 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 no. I, I bow before no man, not as God. I acknowledge you as the ruler. I pray for you, but I bow my knee only to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, no one else. You'll die for that. Then I'll see my master quicker than I thought. He's the ruling king. 
He's over you. And you, Emperor, will one day bow down to him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My Bible tells me that. You think that's true? It's true according to the Scripture. And the Scripture is more real than anything you can see. We've established that. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word, Scripture, will never pass away. He is who he said he is. Jesus right now is not on vacation. He's not taking a sabbatical. He's alive and well, functioning as our great high priest. We have him. We have him. He's superior in all that he did. He was superior. And in all that he's doing, he is superior. And he's right where we need him to be. You see, if he was in Chicago, only a few could get to see him. Only a few could get through to him. Imagine that. You've reached the office of Jesus of Nazareth. He's away right now, serving other people. No, you can call upon him, and he is near. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God hasn't made a switchboard available whereby you can get an appointment in March of next year. Maybe. No, you have him. He's ours. He's yours. He's available. He's always available as God. Well, he's a man. But he's the God-man, and he can hear us. He can hear the Chinese Christian praying and asking God to keep them in the midst of persecution. He can hear you in your trial right now as you call upon him. Right now he hears you. And he's right where we need him to be, in heaven, seated on the throne. In one word, everything's better. Everything's better. That's the main point. That's what really matters. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. God helping me, I'll read these words without crying. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the word of God. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is reality. Then I saw, my prayer today is that you will see. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I believe this is a commentary on being Lord of all creation, Lord of all history. As historical events unfold, Jesus is the Lord of all of it. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
he saw a slaughtered lamb, literally, with seven horns and with seven eyes that speaks of his power and his omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. If you check this out, the new song is always a song of redemption. Saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, by your death. What did the blood of Jesus do? What did the cross of Christ accomplish? And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, some might be put off by that, they don't like high volume in a service. This is going to be a loud service. I'm going to say it softly or else The instruments around here won't survive. Worthy. What's their theme? The main thing. What are they singing about? The main thing. Heaven gets it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this high priest. We have him. We have such a high priest. And that is the main thing. May, us, may we never lose sight of this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.